Before we start our series on Revelation, I just want to acknowledge this is a very sticky wicket, and it's a pit some pastors fall in and get into big trouble with angry congregations from time to time. There are so many different views on Revelation, and some people hold on to them a little too tightly, trying to squeeze everything into a narrow box, and this is what it must mean. And a huge mistake that people make with the Bible is choosing or coming to a lens or interpretation and then saying the Bible now has to fit into this box rather than letting the Bible speak for itself. Uh, we don't ever really want to say, well, it has to be this way. And then when it becomes clear that it never was that way to begin with, that can shake our faith because we've put the Bible on a pedestal, and rather than taking it off the pedestal and seeing it for what it is, we actually more or less worship that pedestal we put it on. Uh, now, I don't hold to my views as absolutely the only way to see it. As strange as it may sound, uh, I like to take a scientific approach to the Bible. What I mean by that is the idea behind a specific, or sorry, a scientific model or theory is that that model is generally the best that explains the data we have collected. Right, so I've collected a ton of data on Revelation. I've listened to a ton of different views and sources. Um, if you're looking for some good ones, I'd highly recommend uh, an author named Michael Gorman. He has an excellent, excellent book on Revelation. Uh, and, and just with all the different data I've collected, all the different views I've looked at, the one that seems to explain that data the best is the one that we're going to look at today. Uh, you know, a good example of this is if you think about maybe people, um, might have been hundreds or thousands of years ago, may have said, maybe the average person would say, you know, a heavier object drops faster than a lighter object, right? If you look at someone dropping a bowling ball or a rock versus a feather, well, the rock weighs more than the feather and therefore drops faster. But if we actually look at the data, if we get something that weighs the same uh, and we put a parachute on it, it's going to go slower because of air resistance. See, that model, that theory helps explain the data that we see of something weighing the same but having a different uh, area and different, you know, uh, um, it, you know, the air messing with it different. Well, that explains the data uh, better. And so we change our understanding on it. So I want to make sure that we, we understand. I may preach on this again in five years and I might have new insights and have to update my model because it helps us better understand the data. So hear me loud and clear. The data, meaning the Bible, is not what is changing, but the more data we collect from the Bible, from the early church and the surrounding context, the better our model will be to explain, interpret, and understand the Bible, that data. So with that, I would highly recommend um, having a Bible in front of you. Maybe you're listening to this while you're on the road, or you're working out or something, that's fine. Um, but it's going to be a lot richer if you're able to kind of skim through the Bible with us as we're going through this. So I want to start with Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 19. It says, Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now we're going to look at three main aspects of this in similar books in the Bible. The first, and this is what we're going to talk about uh, this time, is apocalyptic literature. The second is something called the parousia, and finally our third message will be on eschatology. Now when we hear the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, we think about the end of the world. 
And that might be what we think today, but it's largely fueled by a cultural misunderstanding of what the book of Revelation is. Apocalypse in Greek, which by the way, that is the first word in this book. Chapter one, verse one, the first word in Greek is apocalypse. It simply means revelation. I know, what a circular argument. But what is lowercase revelation? It's just an uncovering. There are things hidden from us one way or another, and God is opening our eyes to it, awakening us and uncovering what was hidden. Notice Jesus says to John in what we just read, that he is to write what is now and what will take place later. See, we often take Revelation, the book, as a vision of the future, predictions about the end of the world. And that's what we'll talk about in the coming weeks with the return of Jesus. That, you know, that word parousia is just a fancy word for that. Um, and then we're going to look at eschatology, which is the study of the last things. Um, we'll look at what heaven and hell and all those things are going to be about as well. Um, what we're going to find this week is that much of what Revelation is speaking to, we saw in the, in the verse, that it's what is now and what will take place later. A lot of it is actually speaking to John's the, the Apostle John's present first century Roman Empire context. You know, in the book of Job, all his suffering happens as a result of something greater happening in heaven between God and Satan. Job and his friends go on and on debating and arguing, trying to figure out why Job is suffering. And it isn't until the end that God reveals some aspect of the greater heavenly reality that Job cannot fathom and did not understand originally. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a great passage I've talked about before where uh, Elisha and his servant are surrounded and terrified when an army, uh, an army of Arameans surrounds them. And Elisha prays that his servant's eyes would be opened and God reveals that there is an army of angels surrounding and protecting them. This is much of what John has been tasked with. The early church is facing immense persecution, much of it under the reigns of Nero and Domitian, and they are crying out to God asking, why aren't you doing something about this? And this book is God's answer. He is revealing what is going on and why and what to expect and to give them a message of hope. So if it's revealing something hidden, why is its meaning hidden from us? It's so confusing and has so much weird language. Why not put things in a clear and straightforward way, right? Why can't John just explain this? You know, he, he kind of mentions, if you guys noticed, um, he says, you know, by the way, these seven lampstands, these seven stars, this is what they are. Sometimes he will do that for us. He will make them a little less hidden, but so much of this we are expected to understand all these different pictures. Here's the thing. Oppressed and persecuted people, like the church back then, often use imagery and indirect ways of speaking truth to power, like the Christians would do to the Romans. Now, the key to unlocking this book is to understand its genre, which is apocalyptic literature, uh, or uncovering, revealing. The way that genre is often expressed, and this is going to be key here, this is a big thing Michael Gorman talks about uh, in his book about Revelation, um, is that often it's expressed like a political cartoon. Um, you could even say it's almost like a meme to our modern day. Imagine John saying, I see before me a great snake that has been cut into 13 pieces, joining together and saying, join or die. Or maybe, you know, he says, and then I see a later flag with a snake that says, it's yellow and it says, don't tread on me. Right? You may remember from your U.S. history class that that was a famous political cartoon and that now it's kind of morphed into a flag that people still fly today. 
See, we learned, hopefully in our U.S. history classes, that the snake represents the 13 colonies and the message, uh, first, that the colonies must band together, and second, that Britain better watch out because this snake doesn't like to get walked all over. Uh, I have some of these you know, examples um, in, in the slides that I have uh, uh, attached to this, um, but right after 9-11, there was a strong feeling of anger and fear in America. There was a desire for retribution and revenge that was just so thick in the nation, you could almost cut it with a knife. There was a political cartoon that came out that was really poignant on this. Uh, and it's simply, there's, I think there's almost no words on it. It's just an eagle sharpening its talons with a nail file. Any guess what that means? It's pretty obvious America is the eagle. And you want to mess around with us? Well, mess around. You're about to find out, right? We're ready to fight back. I'm not saying that's right. But that, that was sort of the feeling. That was the ethos that was going on. And when people saw this picture of an eagle sharpening its talons, people knew what it meant. Today, you know, I, I think the new political cartoon are just basically memes. There's one I saw of a guy uh, who wakes up right before getting put into an ambulance and he runs. Some of us might get this as a critique of the American healthcare system, where someone is literally running from an ambulance ride because they're going... This is going to be so expensive, even with insurance, potentially, it could bankrupt me. Um, and that's a clear, uh, and there's actually more clear and, uh, examples of this throughout the Bible as well, where we see kind of these uh, political cartoon imageries. And sometimes we get an explanation, sometimes we don't. But imagine for a second that 500 years from now, someone sees uh, a meme of someone running away from an ambulance, or someone sees uh, a picture of an eagle sharpening its talons. And they're thinking this must be literal. There's going to be there were literal eagles sharpening their talons back in the United States in that day. Or you know we see political cartoons of elephants and donkeys that represent the Republican Party and the Democrats. Well, someone might say, "Wow, I guess there were actually donkeys and actually elephants that people followed." And and you know, but really, it's something that we understand that has a greater meaning to us, and we need to see what that is so we can get a better understanding of what's going on in Revelation. So a great example comes from the book of Daniel, which Revelation relies on heavily um, and really will help unlock what exactly apocalyptic literature, this kind of biblical political cartoon is. So there's a dream in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and Daniel uh, interprets it. Um, I have the picture, uh, you know, in the, in the notes. Um, and there's a statue with a gold head, a silver body, bronze legs, and iron feet with clay toes. Now, interpretations vary somewhat, but it's basically a political cartoon, a meme, an apocalyptic or revelatory picture that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the head of gold, but we would, would be replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire of silver. Then the Greeks under Alexander the Great would be the bronze, and finally the Romans with the iron. And eventually the statue is smashed by a rock from heaven that becomes a great mountain. And this has long been interpreted by the church as a reference to Jesus as the rock that raises and deposes nations, and the church would be the subversive force against the nations of the world. So what's happened is that we don't live with the same cultural experiences that the early church did. Once again, imagine, you know, uh, like you're talking about what a big deal the pandemic was in 2020, and some kids born after it say, okay, whatever, Gen Z, here they are talking about, you know, it's almost like talking about the Spanish flu. But that's exactly how I feel when, you know, someone tells me they were born after 9-11. We need to be immersed in the culture and immerse ourselves as much as possible, even if we did not live through it and aren't part of that context. 
So we're going to work to uncover what this first century version of a political cartoon is trying to say and critique in its own unique way. So um, here's the thing. D don't think that we're going to be exhaustive over every little thing. Um, we're actually going to skim and go through different parts. You know, maybe certain books like, uh, you know, The Late Great Planet Earth um, or Left Behind or something like that would, you know, those kind of people would go verse by verse and say, ah, this is exactly what that means and this person represents this in our time or whatever it might be. But what you'll see is when we understand that this is like a giant uh, or just a long political cartoon, it's not going to matter as much of what does this exact thing mean? Because we understand, oh, this probably meant something for them. And in general, this is what it's trying to say. We're not trying to go verse by verse to predict every little thing that's happening in our time. So we won't get to every little thing, but let's start with Revelation 5, 6. It says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which, and this, you know, is similar to him describing it, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And we had, when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which, and once again, this is him describing, helping us understand what this is. He's saying, by the way, that represents the prayers of God's people. Right, so here's an easy one. The lamb is pretty clearly Jesus. You know, we see that language a lot in the New Testament, and he looks like he did right after he died and rose again, like he'd been slain. His glorified body still bears some resemblance or some of the scars that even Thomas the Apostle touched after the, uh, the resurrection. A horn is generally understood in apocalyptic literature to mean power. A ram's horn was used in the Hebrew Bible to blow starting a battle. Here we get some insight that the, the, the seven eyes are connected to God's spirit. The number seven is understood in the Hebrew Bible as the number of completion. Seven horns means he's all powerful. Seven eyes means he's all seeing. Notice at the end, there's another symbol explained, which is the bowl of incense representing the prayers of God's people. Jesus is given a scroll. In that day, an emperor might give a scroll with a wax seal on it that only he possessed. And if the emperor had a new decree, he would send his messenger with a sealed scroll to read it in the town square. Then there's this description of the 12 sons of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus worshiping God on his throne. And this is all to remind the church that God is on the throne. Even though kings like Nero crucify them and set them on fire to light chariot races at night, God is still worthy to be praised and has the final word amongst all this. The next chapter is going to describe something called the day of the Lord. So in Revelation 6, verse 9, we see, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. This is like those Christians who have been crucified. And the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. God's people are crying out for justice, for God to right the wrongs that have been done to them. They are told to wait for the day of the Lord. Now in the Hebrew Bible, there was a common theme in the prophets from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to the minor prophets. Uh, even even Jesus' uh, teaching, we see apocalyptic um, elements in his teaching in the New Testament. There, there was this, uh, I, this theme that evil people aren't going to get away with evil forever. Look at what Isaiah uh, chapter 2, verse 12 says. The Lord Almighty has a day in store.
for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. Now, we don't have time to go through them all, but there have been several days of the Lord recorded by the prophets. A clear one was the day of the Lord against Israel. The people of Israel had become so wicked and sinful that God warns them that the Babylonians will conquer them and take them into exile. And the day that happens, or the kind of final defeat, is sort of this day of the Lord, this reckoning for Israel's sin. What we see in Revelation is that there will be a day when God will humble and balance the scales between the church and Rome. Here's an example of how the author is literally calling back to this day of the Lord imagery. Uh, in Hosea 10.8, uh, it says, The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and, and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Compare that with Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. It says, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? See, Jesus is showing John that there will be a day when the Roman Empire falls, when God's judgment comes on them. The next chapter then talks about uh, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel being sealed and marked for salvation from the day of the Lord. Now, this number is likely highly, highly symbolic, mostly coming from the number, well, 12 and 12,000. The main message of this is that when God's judgment comes on the Roman Empire, there will be a multitude of Christians and Jews who are spared. And at this point in time, the church did not see itself as wholly distinct from Judaism, but as a reformation of Judaism from the inside. Now then, you know, we're not going to read a ton of it, but from chapters 8 through 11, there's all this rich imagery from the prophets. And once again, we're not going into every single thing, but I want us to steer clear of a common mistake. May, people like read about a, a star falling from heaven named Wormwood in those chapters, or locusts with iron breastplates and think, aha! This must mean that a meteor is going to fall, or maybe it's Halley's Comet. And, and John, what he's actually seeing is Apache helicopters, but doesn't understand what he's seeing, so he describes them as locusts. Now, this is a gross misreading and a gross misunderstanding. It's also funny to me because, you know, when people tell me they take the Bible literally, I go, well, why do you, why do you not take that literally? Is it's literal locusts or a literal, you know, star falling from heaven, you know, why would you not take that literally? But clearly they don't anyway. Because uh, what this shows is it's like a political cartoon. There's a deep meaning for the people of the time behind all this stuff that they likely would have understood or that the reader would be able to explain for them. Now, this was all stuff that was fulfilled largely in John's time or shortly after against Rome. It's not meant to be taken literally or that it's somehow describing nuclear war. What's happening is that God's people are longing for a day of the Lord against Rome, which John is explaining is happening now, and, or at least in his time, and will happen in their time frame. They just cannot see what is going on in the heavenly realms like Job or Elisha's servant. Now something we will zoom in on comes from chapter 12. Once again, this is heavily layered language, but it describes the birth of the church and the fall of Satan. Uh, he describes a woman giving birth and Satan trying to snatch the child, but there's a whole war in heaven where Satan is cast down and the woman is pr uh, protected. Look how John explains the meaning of this, by the way, in Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's command and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. 
See, the overall message is that Satan has been trying to stop God's redemption through Jesus, who is likely what the child is representing, and the woman likely represents the people of Israel. The church, once again, sees themselves as the future generations of Israel after Jesus. And notice Satan is already identified with a dragon, and there's horns and crowns, and all that's representing the limited power that Satan has on earth. Then we see the dragon, once again Satan, raising up a beast. And the beast is usually representative in apocalyptic literature of a nation or an emperor or often both. And this chapter is almost certainly about Nero. Uh, it talks about the beast having a fatal wound, but healing from it. Now, after Nero died, he was kind of like Elvis. There were always these like rumors going around, these conspiracy theories that Nero wasn't really dead and that he was actually in this, in this place and he was raising an army. And, you know, it just didn't turn out to be true. The biggest giveaway here that it's talking about Nero is actually the number 666. See, every name in Greek and Latin can be calculated according to its letters and corresponding number. Now, I, I don't fully understand. I can't like do these calculations myself. But Nero is actually the perfect candidate because the letters of his name add up to 666 in Greek. Uh, and there was also um, likely, this was likely the interpretation of the early church because when this was translated into Latin, there are quite a few Latin manuscripts where the numbers changed from 666 to 616. And Nero in Latin is one of the few that in Greek and Latin calculates to 666 and then in Latin 616. And so for decades, people have been trying to claim that this, you know, future Antichrist will, you know, uh, will be the sign that Jesus is about to return. And people were always trying to say, oh, really, it's, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev is really, you know, he's the Antichrist. And we see, you know, somehow they're, they're trying to calculate these things. And then, you know, I remember when I was in high school, it, it was Obama was the Antichrist. And I don't know who they say it is now. Maybe they're still saying it's Hillary Clinton or something like that. Here's the thing. Don't bother with any of that stuff because it's been wrong every single time. It's actually much more simple that John is just referring to Nero in a way that these people did and with apocalyptic literature in a way they would understand it better uh, or a way that maybe Rome wouldn't quite get, but his Jewish audience would. Now, similar to the dragon and the beast, there are a ton of references to Babylon. And this is a recurring theme in the Hebrew Bible. The first instance is actually the Tower of Babel, which is almost certainly referring to ziggurats. Uh, this is in the book of Genesis uh, in ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia. The day of the Lord is actually comes against them in the form of the confusion that God brings uh, from one language to many, language, uh, many languages to counter their building of a structure to be gods. Egypt is a form of an apocalyptic Babylon in the way they understood it with their oppression of the Israelites and slavery. And the day of the Lord comes on them in the form of 10 plagues. Then Israel actually becomes an oppressive Babylon themselves, and they are taken captive there. Babylon is then judged by the nation of Persia, and so on. We saw this as well with Daniel's dream, the statue smashed by the rock. That's sort of the day of the Lord coming against them. Um, the important part here uh, comes in chapter 19 with Revelation's interpretation of the rock in Daniel. Um, and it's not totally overt. Um, but it somewhat becomes famous in Christian circles of Jesus coming as this conquering hero in chapter 19, right? Jesus comes on a, on a horse with a tattoo on his leg and a sword and he's covered in blood. And a lot of times like uber macho pastors like Mark Driscoll, he loved this passage because Jesus is coming like Braveheart to fight against evil. However, this is political cartoon imagery. The blood on his robe is more likely his own. 
And he's often depicted in his revelation as a slain lamb, meaning the blood would be his own. And the sword isn't in his hand, it's in his mouth. It is the gospel message. Jesus is coming to conquer the Babylons of yesterday and today and tomorrow with the testimony of the saints who have died in his name, proclaiming his death and resurrection. Now, this is where we're going to stop for today. Um, I know we went through a ton of stuff. And like I said earlier, it isn't exhaustive, but it should give us a really good idea of what Revelation is about because it had a ton for the people who heard it in the original audience, but that does not mean it doesn't have something for us. Probably the best way I've heard this said um, is that prophecy and God's word, uh, which Revelation is a prophetic message. Um, once again, that doesn't necessarily mean it's like predicting the future, um, but that it's more just, it, it's a way that God is trying to speak to us and, and John is the mouthpiece of God as a prophet. Um, this, this prophecy, prophecy in God's word, is kind of like chords. God speaks to us in chords. If you, if you play music, or let's say I, I you know, learned to play guitar growing up, um, a chord is when you strike, let's say, more than one note. And so if I strum all six uh, of the strings, it will create a chord, but we only hear one string being played. The early church only heard what was being said to them, but, but God often has something for future generations in his prophecies as well. We see this a ton in the book of Matthew when he's talking about Jesus and he'll say, this was to fulfill what this prophet said, but what that prophet said actually meant something totally different for the people that he spoke to at the time, but it also was God trying to say something about Jesus as well. God often speaks in chords and we only hear him in notes. So we've gotten to know the note that God told the people back then, but I'm convinced there's a note and a whole chord for us today as well. So here's kind of our key takeaways as we get to what, what it's going to mean for us. God is using, this is number one, God is using first century apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic imagery, sort of like a political cartoon or even a meme, to reveal what is going on in the heavenly realms and how it affects us on earth, right? Don't miss that. That is absolutely crucial to this. Think of it, once again, with Job and Elisha's servant having their eyes open to the heavenly reality. Much of this is speaking, this is number two, is speaking to the events at the time this was written to give hope to the church that God has not forgotten them amidst their suffering and that there will be a day soon for them and in the future when oppressive nations will face divine justice. And third, this means that Revelation is not, it is absolutely not like just delete it from your mind that revelation is a code that we have to decipher of when these events will happen or if hillary clinton is the antichrist but instead it should show us that the church is the rock which has victory over the superpowers of the world not with violence but with the testimony of jesus now next week we'll get more into the nitty-gritty of okay well hold on what about all this stuff about the return of jesus and the millennium and all those things and then the week after that we'll, we'll get more onto you know what do we what, do we, uh, what are we called to expect when it comes to um, what happens after we die with heaven, hell, eternity, and everything in between? Um, I know there isn't a ton of practical application here, right? There, there wasn't, by the way, like homework that John is giving to the early church back then either. The two things it leaves us with is hope that Jesus sees the injustice in the world, the suffering of his church. That's number one. And the second thing is that it gives us hope that he will make it right. He sees us he will make it right. The final thing is that our assignment as a church is not to respond to the world with aggression, but with uh, compassion, 
humility, and service. That's how the church has outlasted the Roman Empire, the Byzantines, the Ottomans, the European empires, and the church will outlast the American empire and whatever comes next. You and I are part of a much, much bigger story and worship a much bigger God than the things our culture worships today. On a smaller scale, maybe this will help you in your own personal journey. Um, I had a mentor who was telling me that he went through a really rough time at the church he was at. Uh, and he eventually left, left that church and it really was not a fun process. Um, but he, and he was struggling for months saying, God, like, why did you allow this to happen to me? What is, what is going on here? And he just felt like he wasn't getting anything. But a few months later, he gets this super awesome job at a really healthy church five minutes away from his house. His old church was like an hour and a half. And this woman at the church comes up to him and says, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so excited. I feel like I know you so well already because I have been, uh, been praying for someone like you. And when I found out it was you, I prayed more and more and more for you. This woman is like the definition of a prayer warrior. Like she is clearly someone who is regularly encountering the presence of God. And for months, she was pleading with God, send us a youth pastor. Where is he? Why haven't you sent him yet? And God is trying to reveal to her in the heavenly realms, I have this guy, but he's way over here. And I've got to get him, I, I, he's gonna have to go through a whole process that's not gonna be fun for him to get him from there to here. And he had no idea, my mentor, what was going on in heaven, but he only got a glimpse, a small revelation of what was previously hidden from him. And right now, you may be going through a tough time. You may be saying, God, where are you? Why am I going through this thing? Do you even see me? Are you even listening to my prayers? And it may seem that way, but my prayer is that God would open our eyes to what he is doing in heaven that is affecting us daily and that we would have hope saying, God, I don't like what I'm going through right now, but I trust you that you are working and God, would you only give me a glimpse into what you are doing all around me 